Welcome fellow eco-feminists. Today is Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. And in our podcast this afternoon, you'll be hearing from a small collective of women who care deeply about the environment. And we've chosen to take a look at some of its most complex planetary concerns through a gender lens. And what this means is that our goal is to best explore how these matters are affecting women in particular. We've chosen to do this in a more intimate setting, and each one-on-one with our listeners is going to feel a little bit like therapy. We believe this is a great way to get to the heart of any real deeply rooted problem. So sit back, take notes if you like, and while we can't promise to pay you by the hour, we do promise to offer some food for thought. And hear us out, for we are women with issues. Hey guys, my name is Mackenzie and I'm studying environmental studies at UCF as a junior and I am a woman with issues, a lot of them. But today I want to discuss indigenous women and ecofeminism. As a dual citizen, I am split between worlds, Australia and America, both places where there was colonization by the white Englishman. I mean, my ancestors, thank goodness, were not colonizers, but rather the prisoners that were forced to live in Australia. Being a dual citizen that grew up in both countries, I learned about the native Indians in America and the aboriginals in Australia. Now being a student in gender and the environment, I have started to investigate the social problems women face specifically that have connections to the environment as well. Indigenous women in general are subjected to extreme poverty, trafficking, illiteracy, lack of access to ancestral land, non-existent or poor health care, and to violence in the private and public sphere. When violence occurs in these communities, it is women that become the target of violence with political motives when going about their daily work, fetching food or water for the family. Australia is home to aboriginals. I used to be and I'm still so entranced in regards to the rich culture filled with art, storytelling, and rituals. Aboriginals created dreamtime stories that talked about the creation of animals, earth, and themselves. Aboriginals believed that their dreamtime was way back at the very beginning. The land and the people were created by the spirits. They made the rivers, streams, water holes, the land, hills, rocks, plants, and animals. It is believed that the spirits gave them their hunting tools and each tribe its land, their totems, and their dreaming. This beautiful culture, after coming in contact with English settlers and colonizers, experienced a very dark dark turn, however. Since the European invasion of Australia in 1788, the Aboriginal people have been oppressed into a world unnatural to their existence for thousands of years. First came the influx of strangers who carried with them disease, which decimated the immediate population of the Sydney tribes. To fast forward to the present day in Australia, we are seeing significant increases in very severe psychological problems. Indigenous men, for example, between the ages of 25 and 29 have the highest suicide rates in the world, with 90.8 suicides for 100,000 inhabitants, and the issue is growing. 
The last decade has seen a 56% rise in hospitalizations, hospitalization rates for self-harm. It was difficult to find statistics specifically for Aboriginal women, but if men are experiencing this in their communities, it has to have an effect on the women as well. A really interesting statistic found was Aboriginal women in Australia represent the largest cohort of prisoners in the country, comprising approximately of 34% of the total number of female prisoners, despite making up only 2% of Australia's total population. Things that have led to this staggering number are drug addiction, homelessness, domestic violence, child removal, and abuse. For many of these women, contact with the criminal justice system began at an early age after being removed from their Aboriginal families and placed into child welfare systems. Aboriginal women are already severely disadvantaged in society. They are 32 times more likely than non-Indigenous women to be hospitalized due to domestic violence, and one in four women seeking help for homelessness are Aboriginal. Even today, Aboriginal children are 10 times more likely than non-Aboriginal children to be removed from their families and placed into child welfare, often due to mothers being in prison. On the other side of the world, however, in 2015, states adopted two other outcome documents that contain specific references to Indigenous people. The Addis Ababa Action Agenda on Financing for Development of the Third International Conference on Financing for Development, in which states recognize that indigenous peoples' traditional knowledge, innovations, and practices could support sustainable livelihoods, while also calling for a focus on indigenous, indigenous people in the context of social protection. And in the Paris Agreement, in which the states highlighted the importance of indigenous people's traditional knowledge in combating climate change. Both outcome documents are also relevant to indigenous women owning, owing to their imperative roles in preserving, developing, shaping, and transmitting traditional knowledge. Indigenous women can strengthen our knowledge and belief of ecofeminism and the roots of this important social movement for female rights. According to Julia Mason, she, defi she defines ecofeminism as a tool or lens for analyzing the connection between environmental justice and gender justice. Ecofeminism, according to Mason, challenges us to think about the social mentality that leads to the domination and oppression of women, directly connected to the social mentality that leads to the abuse of the environment. It connects females to the earth. Indigenous women are in, innately connected with earth and nature. Most of our modern day permaculture techniques are derived from indigenous culture. Women played a key role in these communities as cultivators of the earth, using her plants as medicine and food. We all remember Pocahontas. Native Americans taught the pilgrims and the colonizers about how they planted and harvested their food. It is heartbreaking to know that this historical racism and systemic racism and oppression still has a huge impact today on indigenous women all around the world. If one subgroup is oppressed, then there is no way for any of us to be truly free from the patriarchy. 
We have to fight for each other. We have to fight for what we want our world to look like. We have to fight for the world that we want our little girls to grow up in. And we have to fight for the little girl that has always been inside of us. Hello, this is Brianne. I am a wife and mother, wildlife rehabilitator, environmental educator, currently an interdisciplinary studies senior at the University of Central Florida, and I am a woman with issues. Today, my issues are ecofeminist issues and how capitalism, patriarchies, inequality in agriculture, and climate change all combine to affect our environment and women in an oppressive way. And I'll just jump right in and start with capitalism. So we are a capitalist society, and sure, we have a mixed economy, but capitalism pretty much prevails. But we're not the best at being capitalist. The top 10 most capitalistic countries are In order, Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland, Australia, Ireland, the United Kingdom, Canada, the United Arab Emirates, and Taiwan. And I bring it up because I want to circle back to that later. U.S. is actually number 12 due basically to our large government spending and our fiscal insecurity. We are known for our market crashes. And what is capitalism and why are we in this category at all? Well, we know it's an economic system. And it is a system in which the owners control the factors of production, and from doing so, they derive their income, right? Capitalism incentivizes people to maximize the amount of money they earn through competition. And that way, competition is the driving force of innovation, and individuals create ways to accomplish tasks more efficiently. That's the idea. So what this is supposed to do is equate to the best products being made at the best prices because people pay more for what they want the most and competition for the best prices will give us ingenuity and better products, which sounds great. But there's always a but. The but is that true equality. If everybody were to wake up in the morning born into the same circumstances, everybody would be a fantastic capitalist. Everyone would make the same amount of money. Everybody would need the same things in the same way, and it would be perfect. But that's not how life works. Not everybody has the same work ethic or skill set, intelligence drive, means, and capitalism doesn't provide for those who lack competitive skills, and that means it's not equipped to take care of or place value in those that are not producers. So the elderly or children, developmentally disabled, and caretakers of these people, they are not people that capitalism is providing for. So to keep society functioning, capitalism requires the government to have policies that value the family unit because capitalism is only going to value the economy and what it can do to better the economy, which is just money. So it naturally lends itself to favoring some lives while marginalizing others. So that's where the government has to step in. And poor people with capitalism that is not being supported by its government, they don't obtain what they need based on necessity or availability of products. Instead, you have to have sufficient money and credit. It's the only way to get basic human needs. And actually, in this system, even the middle class gives up to the wealthier upper class above them, and that class gives up to the elite class above them. And I think of it kind of like a triangle where 
you know, everybody who has everything is the best producers or the peak top of that triangle. And then the less you have, the more you make up the base of the triangle. And so capitalism equals very large concentrations of wealth for a very small percent of the population. And its basic design goal is accumulation of wealth. And that creates inequality. So this limits democracy because there becomes a ruling class and they get all the cultural capital, which is all the relationships and the hobnobbing and the experiences and the things they can buy and all the stuff you need to be at the top of that triangle to make decisions and profit the most. Money is the most valued, not human well-being, not equality, not resources, not the health of the environment. So capitalism gone unchecked or gone unsupported is an environmental concern and potentially a feminist issue because anytime there's inequality, you need to be looking for marginalized people. So we will get to that. In fact, environment often suffers for monetary gain. And we see that all the time because money's taking precedence and it's the end goal above all else. So because those with means are separated by the system from those who do not have, it creates a class divide in income. And because it creates unemployment and underemployment, we have to look at those statistics. And it also is prone to periodic crises, right? Market crashes, stock crashes, housing market crashes, any market can crash. And the worst off to bear the burden of those crises are the poverty stricken. So all those people at the bottom level of that triangle that I was talking about. So why do we care? What What is it about ecofeminism? We've already established that it's not going to favor the environment. What about women? Well, statistically in present day, yes, anybody can experience poverty, but right now poverty is gendered. And so a couple examples of this, um, the annual income of the world's richest 50 people. So think about a random day you go to the grocery store, there's maybe 50 people in there, workers and people, not a busy day, just a random day. So 50 people, the annual income of those 50 people is around the same as the total income of the bottom 1 billion poorest people. That's nine zeros. So it takes nine zeros worth a billion people to equal just those 50 that's a huge disparity. And of the poorest 1 billion, according to the UN Development Program, they did a survey in 1995, 70% of that 1 billion are women. That shows statistically that in present day, poverty is gendered. And then you add to that other discriminatory factors that we know of in society, black women, indigenous women, trans women, any other discriminatory characteristic, is just going to compile on top of poverty and and suppress them even more. So even here in the United States, we're not um, exempt from those kind of disparities. According to the U.S. Census Bureau in, I think it was 2018, of the 38.1 million people living in poverty, and that's people, so men, women, children, all the people that are living in the poverty or below the poverty level, 56%, which is 21.4 million were women. So the, t- the statistics are showing us that poverty right now is gendered, and that's why it's part of the eco-feminist issue. So we've established that capitalism is a system that rewards those who can accumulate wealth and pushes others towards poverty. And I think we've established that statistically poverty can be gendered, and right now it is. I think another issue that's woven into it, especially since we can identify with this here in the U.S., is patriarchal systems and how they feed into and create oppression of women. 
And if poverty-stricken women, remember that makes up over half of our people, are subject to anything else that discriminates them, like I said, this multiplies the oppression. So that leads me to the patriarchy. And what is patriarchy? It's a system of society or government where men hold all the power and privilege. So when they make decisions, they make them from their perspective, and it does not take into consideration a perspective that is not their own. So that is patriarchy, and it lends itself to being unequal against anyone who is not within that group, within the patriarchy, and that would be women and minorities, because tends to be white men in our country. So what's interesting to note about what ecofeminism highlights is that it presents the idea that the mentality that leads to the oppression of women is the same idea and thinking process that leads to the destruction of the environment. And that's something that a feminist, Julia Mason, said at a TED Talk that really stuck with me. So accepting this connection, it makes sense to understand how patriarchies that lead to the oppression of women are often places we will also see similar burdens put on the environment. And I certainly think we can say that here. So when those burdens of taking care of those environmental concerns fall to women, that's an eco-feminist issue. That's compounding the disparities that these women are facing. So patriarchy matters because gender is historically and currently, a principle that allocates duties and rights and rewards and power based on gender, based on what the patriarchy says. This is our point of view. We are at the top and we make all our decisions based on what we know and think. Um, And it divides up labor and favors those in charge, men, right? So women tend to bear the burden of certain roles that they've been delegated. And some of those that we're very familiar with are in the arena of domestic labor. So things like child rearing and selection and appropriation, preparation, elimination of food for the family, home care, recycling, energy usage. So when you think about those things, all those things about food and recycling and energy, that's all part of being a good environmentalist. And when you're a good environmentalist, we try and practice things like sustainability. And Julia Mason, who I was just talking about, also said that her definition of sustainability is one that I happen to agree with. She said, sustainability means understanding that everything is connected and acting accordingly. And I believe that that's true. If you want to be sustainable, if you want things to continue on in a healthy, good way, then I think the best way to embrace that is to believe that everything is connected and everything has a, you know, every reaction has an equal opposite. A reaction has a reaction. Yes, that's what we're going with. (laughs) So all these things are connected and you can't do anything without there being a consequence. So that, that burden of Is this sustainable? That burden of taking care of the environment falls to women because it's primarily women deciding, can I buy this organic produce? If I buy it, is it a good idea? If I don't, am I doing the environment and my family a disservice? Keep in mind, this is also usually an expensive option. So poorer women and certain neighborhoods that don't even have that option can't make that option their decision. Um, Things like composting and cooking waste, this is all domestic workload that only further perpetuates a gender stereotype that already exists. So the environmental burden often falls to women with recycling, you know, sorting out the garbage. But what's interesting about that is that that burden falls on the individual. And when it does that, it shields us from seeing 
that the companies should be targeted for the wasteful packaging choices in the first place. So we have to go out and decide, can I buy this? Is it too much packaging? But really, what do we do? We go out and say, can I buy this? Can my family afford it? So the less a family has, the less choice they can make about the environment, right? They really have to make a choice based on the monetary budget of their family. And ironically, something I noticed, something like paper products, paper towels, the the cheapest, least expensive paper towel comes in the most packaging. So that family of four that wants to buy paper towels because it's necessity, but they just want to, you know, not spend too much money, they're going to buy the ones that potentially are packaged in plastic. That's again, packaged in plastic, which is just a horrible, wasteful choice, but they cost so much less than the nice, fancy ones that are barely packaged. So that burden falls on the woman making those decisions. They're also more likely to make food sacrifices for their family members when there's food shortages in a household. And then something we don't think about too much here, but in many uh, underdeveloped countries, clean water is a matter of labor and safety for women. Water is not necessarily in a well in the middle of a community. And so they have to travel to get clean water and travel to get it back to their family. So it's a matter of labor and they have to potentially traverse very unsafe lands in order to get water to and from um, where they need to go. So like I said, the sustainability becomes an environmental burden that falls mostly on women due to the patriarchy, due to the roles that are dictated to them by the patriarchy. And outside the typical home, one place you really see this evident is in agriculture, maybe more so than you realize. I mean, I certainly thought that it was a male-dominated occupation, but I've recently read some things that made me super aware of just how entrenched in the patriarchy it is all. And it's kept these defined roles in farming And I had no idea Um, because actually, when you look at the gender roles, we find they're really baked in and perpetuated by the patriarchy. When you listen to this statistic, women actually own 46% of the nation's rented farmland. That's from a 2018 survey. And they estimate, I think the year before that, that women own or co-own about half of all farmland. So about 2017 and 18, it was about half both years. So we think it's dominated by men because that's what we see, right? We see tractor and farming supply store ads with men targeting men. It all seems very manly. Um, but the, the reality is there are a lot of women farmers. That said, the way women can obtain and acquire farmland is actually still very tied to men. So they are dependent on them for this acquisition. So in the U.S., women farm operators typically access land through one of three routes. They either marry into land, so they either gain access to their husband's land, which is often family land, or they draw on their husband's income from some non-farming career, right? They wanted to have a farm. Their husband has some non-farming thing that they did, made a lot of money, and they're able to purchase their own land. So that's through their husband. And then the last one said that they can acquire their own land later in life after saving enough money, but it even had the little disclaimer or through a divorce settlement. So all three are kind of tainted by this is not an independent acquisition. Maybe that last one potentially, but think it takes them a lot longer. It's not something they start off early in life. And so it's all tied to this like age long 
dominated space by men. So um, those who don't have a partner that is male, that don't follow that, that heteronormative family unit or other source of capital are at a great disadvantage. So that's interesting, that nuclear family unit. Something else I just recently learned is that I always assumed that was just kind of a natural, organic thing that happened in rural America. I think I thought it was a, a religious-based ideal. I really never really thought about it. But apparently the reason it is set up that way is that it's not normal. But in the 30s, the U.S. government pushed for nuclear patriarchal models of the family because they were worried about declining rural birth rates. And so one way they came up with to combat this was to create the 4-H. So if you're familiar with 4-H, I've always known it to be this youth kind of club that teaches youth about farming. But it was put into place to educate rural youth on heterosexual romance to increase rural reproduction. And it has since educated 70 million people since the 30s. And they wanted, I'm making air quotes here, healthy, wholesome marriages. So their MO was to create this nuclear family setting in the rural part of America. And what's really wild to me is it was so well placed in rural America that today, even now, when they do data collection about production on farms, so this is like surveys they send out to farms that they self-disclose, and the government doesn't even stipulate what they're reporting exactly. They don't categorize it specifically for them, but they're just supposed to report who's doing what on the farm. Women don't even see themselves as farmers. They see themselves as farmers' wives. So things like taking care of the home or the chickens or the smaller animals that are typically kept closer to the homestead, they don't consider that work. So farm work is not considered farm work if it's done by women on the farm because it's not part of the model that they set into motion in the 30s, which I found really surprising. And then globally, only between 10 to 20% of women in agriculture in developing countries have land rights. This limits their access to loans, which is really a great way for them to reduce crop vulnerability and continue to live off of farming, especially in underdeveloped countries where they really have a lot more to lose um, when they live in so far removed from other places and people to draw from or to rely on. So only 10 to 20% of women in agriculture have that capability, which I found startling. So all that is a lot to absorb, but I think the one that's really weighing on me, doc, <laughs> that I need to get off my chest is the issue of climate change. I think once we talk about that, I'll feel better. So it's an eco-feminist issue and that it's affected by capitalism. It's affected by the patriarchy. It affects agriculture and the environment and women because our climate is changing at an alarming, unprecedented rate. And whether you believe the majority of sciences who point out that our practices on earth are contributing to that rate or not, and you should believe them because they're right. Numerous studies show that this climate change will lead to increased droughts and erosion of coastal systems, ocean acidification, destruction of biodiversity, sea level rise. I know we all hear about that one all the time and shifting seasons in coming decades. I don't know about coming. I feel like it's already happening. And then as a consequence, 
Global warming will intensify water stress and undermine food systems for billions of people, mostly in less developed countries. And so when we look at climate change globally, this means that women who play such a key role in food and water provisions, like we discussed, are being affected by the food and water crises the most that are worsening due to climate change. And capitalism can create divisions of wealth and lead to poverty. And women in poverty bear an unfair burden of domestic labor due to patriarchal systems in place both here in the U.S. and worldwide. So it's really easy to see the connection, how climate change will affect agriculture and farmers everywhere. If women can't access equal financial assistance for their farms in the face of it, that's a serious women's issue. So anywhere that there's water shortages from natural disasters, right? They affect poor families more than they affect those that can have access to water. That is a a serious women's issue. Climate change and natural disasters are risk multipliers. So if women are at high risk to begin with, environmental impacts multiply their existing hardships. So here's some interesting factoids about climate change or weather events and how they affect women that might bring that home a little bit more. Uh, The World Health Organization reports that droughts and floods and storms will kill more, or they do kill, more women than men. So a cyclone in Bangladesh in 91, 90% of the 140,000 people killed were women. A study following a flood in Nepal two years later in 93 found that the greater morality rates of women were due to discriminatory practices in the distribution of food and medical attention because the humanitarian aid prioritized men in that area. So if that's not just shouting patriarchy at you, I don't know how else to show it to you. (laughs) The report also showed that women are more likely to die in heat waves and malaria epidemics associated with rising temperatures. And these numbers, they say, will only grow as the frequency of natural disasters increases because of climate change. Another uh, report was the 2017 World Disaster Report. So temperature changes are also putting women and girls at a greater risk of sexual violence and sexual exploitation, trafficking, and domestic violence, especially in emergency situations after natural disasters. Now that floored me because I really did not, that's just not even on my radar, surprisingly. For example, after the 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean, many women and girls from Sri Lanka and India were forced to marry what they called tsunami widowers because their families could no longer support them. Just going to let that sink in. So they just had no choice. These people are now widowers. Your family is destitute. You just have to do this. That's just mind-boggling to me. And when Hurricane Michael touched down in Florida in 2018, so just two years ago, Domestic violence increased among affected families. According to the director of the Refuge House in Florida, the Attention Center for Victims of Domestic Violence during the hurricane, their centers in Florida received double the number of women compared to their normal rates. And despite the statistics, the impact of natural disasters on domestic violence indicators is often ignored. And I I absolutely believe that. I never hear about it. And we live in Florida. We hear about hurricanes all the time. When they're coming at us, it is on the news. It is on the weather. It's on every channel. But I don't think I've ever heard the words domestic violence and hurricanes in the same sentence when it's happening. So a report from the United Nations 52nd session on the status of women maintains that Because of the historic responsibility women have had for providing resources for their homes, so because of this 
role that they've been delegated, but that they've been doing in the role that they have in community. Women have invaluable knowledge, this is their verbiage, of strategy design for ensuring subsistence in new environmental realities. So what United Nations is saying is that women have been dictated these roles, but they can take what they know and have valuable input as to what they need with what's going on in the environment. And that's true. But I will argue, yes, having more women at the table, yes, it helps best strategize for their inclusion and equality when dealing with climate change. That said, should it really be the burden of the oppressed to look at their oppressors and tell them how not to oppress them alone? Because I argue that that's not, that doesn't work, right? Do women in the boardroom, are they always heard just because they're finally in the boardroom? No. So I argue that there needs to be a shift in the systems in place that allow for these disparities to exist in the first place. That whole structure needs to be dismantled, kind of a critical critique of the entire system. We know why it's there. How do we dismantle it? So remember I mentioned those best 10 capitalist countries at the beginning of my little issue session? Six out of 10 of those countries are led by women. And so remember, I also mentioned capitalism is only a good idea if the government allows it to, or if the government steps in and the ones who allow it are also willing to support their people when they need them most. Well, if you look at all 10 of those countries, they all have something in common. And it's not that they're led by women, only six of them are led by women. Oh, and I should add, there was a study in 2018 of about 10,000 women. And it was based on things like your country cares about human rights, how they deal with gender equality and income equality and progress and safety. What are the best countries to live in? And the women voted four of those 10 countries in the top 10. We, again, are not anywhere on this list of top 10. and the reason I think those are there, because it's not capitalism alone that is that is affecting women in a negative way. It's when capitalism is left unchecked and not supported by government in a way that helps the most burdened women. And I think one of the ways to assist those women and help them be pushed more towards equity and, and equality is something that these 10 countries are doing right. Every single one of these countries has free universal health care. I think one of them has free or low cost, but they have a free option for much of their um, poorer and those with most need uh, public. So my takeaways are this. Capitalism can work in society. It is not the worst thing for ecofeminism. But if that society doesn't have a government that ensures that its non-producers and that its environment are protected by the divisions of wealth and prioritization of wealth that it creates, it can easily help make ecofeminist issues worse, right? It just magnifies and multiplies the burden. Patriarchy is an ecofeminist issue, and the only way to dismantle it is to, yes, elect women in positions of power and change the infrastructure to one that considers all people at all levels of society, as well as sustainability of its environment. And I would argue sustainability as a way of looking at everything connected, not just keeping it going so we can go, but maybe giving the environment the equality that we want for ourselves. I also say that climate change is an eco-feminist issue, and ignoring that women bear a greater burden when facing climate change just multiplies their already existing hardships. 
So awareness of women's issues in the face of climate change needs to become a priority in order to work toward real solutions. But really, at the heart of feminist issues is equality. Embracing that definition of sustainability, that everything is connected and that we should act accordingly, is really the best way to tackle all of these issues. (sighs) I feel better. Thank you. I'm Hannah Youssef, and I am a woman with issues regarding ecofeminism when it comes to being vegan. There is a concept that the oppression of animals in the form of being slaughtered and eaten is like the oppression of women in a patriarchal society. Yes, we all know that we get our protein from plants and animals. However, when first thought about feminism, I thought about the eggs produced from the female animals. Feminized protein is taken from living female animals. These chickens are put in battery cages and in not so present environment. Yes, they are alive, but dairy products are not victimless foods. Same situation goes with female cows and milk. People have this idea that vegan people are not happy. However, most of them are actually happy. Uh, Vegan feminism is critique and visionary that look at the individuals and social structures. Hi everyone, thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Women with Issues. My name is Nicole Poison, and I am a first year student here at UCF where I'm studying environmental studies with a minor in political science. And I am here to add on a little bit of veganism to what Han had said. Did you know that 75% of members for animal rights groups are actually women? And feminists have been working towards animal rights for over more than a century. It is known that women are more compassionate in general, especially when it comes to animals. We tend to more side with them. We are less likely to abuse them. So this all kind of adds up to why more women are seen to be going vegan. It is also because of the precarious masculinity. This is the idea that men are constantly being worried about their manly status and if they are going to be seen as this masculine figure compared to women, compared to other men, compared to their peers. So it kind of leans them toward not being vegan and women make up that majority. Now going into my next topic, the divine feminine. This is the aspect of self-association with our creativity, intuition, community, sensuality. This is a feeling that we just get that connects us to our consciousness, our responsibilities, our nurture, our intuition, our empathy, all of these wonderful things that combining, they make both the man and the woman. This aspect of the divine feminine helps us build stronger relationships, helps us talk about our personal and professional successes, and shows us how to channel our energy in day-to-day life. A great example of this is the body knowing when the brain doesn't if somebody is toxic for you. So you know that gut feeling that you get when somebody walks into the room and you just don't like their vibe, you just feel that something is off. This is that energy, that divine feminine that is telling you that something is off, that something is not right here. When you get this feeling, you're tuning into your sensory body rather than just your mind, rather than just thinking. You're actually using every sense of your body to know, to sense something, to smell, to taste. 
although this is found in the man and in the woman, this is something that most people use when they, when they refer to the fact that women are more connected to nature. Anyone can uncover their divine feminine, but because women are the majority in this, they are seen as more connected to the earth, more connected to the people around them. And this is why, because we channel our senses, we channel everything in us in order to determine situations, to help us make decisions, all those fun stuff. So now I want you to ask yourself, do you think that you have uncovered your divine feminine, that you are in connection with it, that you can sense it whenever you feel like somebody isn't correct, when somebody's vibe is off, when your vibe is off, can you feel that? If your answer is no, I challenge you to do certain things that will connect you a little bit more to the earth, to nature. I challenge you to meditate every morning, to give yourself some self-worthy motivation talks, all of that. Now on to my next topic. This one is a little bit different. We're going to be talking about fast fashion in the fast fashion industry. This is a term used to describe inexpensive designs that move quickly from the catwalk to stores to meet new trends. Some elements of fast fashion include trend replication, rapid production, pretty low quality, and competitive pricing. You see a lot of companies having similar similar styles and very similar pricings, and if some go down, the other go down, and it just becomes a whole economic lesson that we can talk about right now, but I promise we won't. Here we will be talking about the effects that it has on the environment and to the workers who are making all of these products, which just happen to be the majority of women. As we all know, fashion trends come and go, and over 11 million tons in the U.S. alone are clothings thrown away and filling up landfills. These garments are full of lead, pesticides, and countless other chemicals that never truly break down, and all they become are toxic and seep into the ground and really they can very much contaminate our groundwater, contaminate the ecosystems around them, and just overall are not good for the environment. Some examples of these fast fashion industries include Forever 21, Sheen, all of these companies that you see that have relatively cheap clothes um, that people are just dying to buy, but they don't know the truth behind them. A recent study actually came out proving that about 75 million people are making these clothes every day and 80% of them are women between the ages of 18 and 24. These young people who should be out there getting an education, trying to build themselves up in life, are making all these garments in an in a factory with low worker conditions, paid about three to four dollars a day in places mainly in China and Bangladesh. And then the United States and other companies consume these clothings and textiles in other nations all around the world. And we don't really know the truth behind what comes out of these clothes. What's the process before and after we purchase and wear them? It actually takes a garment worker 18 months to earn a fashion brand CEO makes on their lunch break because they make about 3 to $4 every day. Isn't that just a horrific fact? Isn't that just insane to think about? That they make $3 every day and that it takes them 18 months to just make what you make on a, on a lunch break. That's, that's just an insane fact. 
Well, I hope that you learned some insightful things today and I hope you can take something away from this. Try to live a little bit more sustainably. Try to look for more eco-friendly options. Maybe even try out veganism. And I hope you have a wonderful day and please come back to listen with Women With Issues. Bye! Hello everyone, my name is Danae Pugh. I'm a senior studying environmental studies, the science track specifically, with a minor in biology, and I am a woman with issues. I have a good amount of issues, but we're not here to talk about that today. We're going to talk about two specifically. So the first one that I want to bring up is ecofeminism and other non-human animals. So when I think about this, the first things that come to my mind are wildlife rehabilitation centers, um, wildlife tourism, such as zoos, aquariums, things like that, and even down to the pets that we own. Um, And between my fiance and I equals roughly about 15 animals, so it's quite a lot. Um, I know personally, when I take my animals to the vet, I'll go there, and a lot of the staff that I see working are females. The veterinarians, um, the techs, even the people that check you in and out at the desk, a lot of them seem to be female. And there's a reason for that. In ecofeminism, we have something called the care approach. And that just basically highlights our moral responsibility to treat these animals with care and respect. Because at the end of the day, we are sharing our planet, our resources with these animals. So we should show them with care and respect, similarly to how we would want to be treated. Another thing that needs to be highlighted is empathy. My connotation personally of nature includes humans, but it's not just humans. It's all of the animals, all of the planet that we're sharing. So we need to be diligent in treating everything kindly. And on that note, I am going to talk about my other problem that I have right now. And it's everybody's favorite issue, menstrual products. So some not-so-fun facts is people who menstruate will menstruate on average for around 40 years. And if this is like five days a week, that ends up adding up pretty quickly to around 2,400 days just in their lifetime. That's about the same as around six and a half years of bleeding, which sounds crazy, but it is something that we have to deal with. Growing up, I even now, I see commercials for all of these different kinds of pads and tampons, and growing up, that's what I used because that, to me, was the norm. That's what I saw other people use. That's what I saw on the television, so that's what I used. But around five to 15,000 pads and tampons will be used by one single person menstruating in their lifetime. Five to 15,000. That is 
a crazy number. And where do those pads and tampons end up? In landfills. Just in 2018, people in the United States bought 5.8 billion tampons. That is a crazy amount of tampons that are just going to end up in the landfill with a lot of other things. Now, waste aside, there are also some crazy health concerns when, in, you know, dealing with tampons. Um, one of them is TSS, which is toxic shock syndrome. And I know growing up, I was always terrified that I was going to get this, and thankfully I did not. Um, another one is cancer, so another huge health concern. These come from the ingredients that are used in tampons, such as rayon, which is the big one linked to TSS, cotton, which when they're not organic cotton, can be, they can, they can have like pesticides sprayed on them when they're growing. Roughly a quarter of all global pesticide use is used while growing cotton. And sometimes this cotton is even bleached with chlorine. Now, my vagina is not a pool. I do not want chlorine in there. And sometimes these brands will even include fragrances. And that is also another ingredient that I do not want in my body. Luckily, we do have some other choices, friends. My favorite is my menstrual cup. Um, a lot of people aren't very comfortable with the idea. It is something that you have to practice, just like tampons, but I love it. Not only does it cut down on the waste that I'm throwing away because I reuse the same menstrual cup every month, it also cuts down on the money that I'm spending on menstrual products. Instead of having to go to the store, buy a box of tampons every month, I just use the same menstrual cup, which I bought for I think $12, so it's much cheaper. Another route is getting some reusable pads that are washable. So you use them, you wash them, you reuse them. You can even use some like old fabric or cloth. So much better on the environment. And then another great choice that I love doing, especially if I don't have to leave my house, the good old free bleeding. These choices are so much better for you for the waste that is not going into the landfills and ultimately for the environment and the planet. So I hope that if you do use uh, like pads or tampons, I sound like a commercial, you will at least think about and maybe try out some of these other products that are much better for us. Well, friends, this concludes our session. Mackenzie, Hanan, Nicole, Danae, and myself would all like to thank you for listening and hope that you'll agree our issues are all women's issues and all people's issues that deserve our time and action. If you now feel inspired to take on some of these issues, you can do so by checking out some of the organizations that we like. The global advocacy organization we do can be found at wedo.org or get involved more locally with the National Organization for Women at flnow.org. Because as Vendana Shiva says, 
The liberation of Earth, the liberation of women, the liberation of all humanity is the next step of freedom we need to work for, and it's the next step of peace that we need to create. Thanks for listening.